When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to All Music Movies, a part of the All Music Podcast series and a companion podcast to All Music Books Deep Dive. Here, we explore music films and documentaries rather than books, and there are so many great ones, old and new. In fact, these days, there seems to be a new music film or documentary every week, so we're very excited to explore this area. I'm your host, Steve J. so grab your popcorn, sit back and relax, enjoy the show. Let's talk music documentaries and films. Today, we're going to talk about Bob and the Monster, a documentary film that follows Thelonious Monster lead singer Bob Forrest through his life-threatening struggle with addiction to his transformation into one of the most influential and controversial drug counselors in the U.S. today. I found this movie to be a hopeful and unforgettable inspirational story. Today's guest is Kirda Baruth, who directed the movie Bob and the Monster. Welcome, Kirda. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, definitely. Um, I've spoken to you about this, and uh, I really, really enjoyed this movie. And it's such a personal film that that I have to ask, were you friends or acquaintances with Bob Forrest? Not before I started uh, the film, no. I knew who Bob was, but we were not friends. I did have a mutual friend, Iris Berry, who was the person I reached out to when I became interested in Bob's story. And she connected us in 2004. Did you know his story? I knew... Uh, I found out in the process of watching your movie and doing some research that he was on, what is it, Celebrity? Celebrity Rehab. Celebrity Rehab, which I did not know. Did you know his story at all? Well, Celebrity Rehab was, I think, a decade after, or not, maybe not a decade, but it, that came much later. I did know Bob's story because I knew Thelonious Monster. So I was around during that time in that kind of alt scene that was happening in the late 80s mid to late 80s in Los Angeles. And so Thelonious Monster was a band that I used to go see. Um, and they were great. And, you know, along with like Fishbone and the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Dream Syndicate and Celebrity Skin and all these cool bands that were playing around it, like, you know, Raji's and Jabberjaw. And it was an alternate to the Sunset Strip, you know. Right, right. I was working at Saturday Night Live and you know, thinking about like what I wanted my career trajectory to be. And I worked in the film unit at SNL and the film director there had uh, handed me a small Sony cam and asked me to go around and record what a week was at, you know, SNL for the 40th anniversary. It was a special that was going to air. And it was this first, it was the first time that I was really empowered to go and document, you know, extraordinary people in this space. And so, you know, the camera was like my entrance to Lauren Michael's office, which I had never been in before, even though I had worked there for, you know, months. And 
I started recording, you know, what it was like for the host to come in and, you know, those initial meetings and then the writing process and the rehearsing. And it was all so exciting. So it, that was really what like put in my mind that this was something that I wanted to do. And so uh, I had moved back to Los Angeles and I was working in reality television and working on a show called Blind Date and, you know, jumping here and there and still kind of figuring it out. And being a huge music fan and being a record collector, I was in Amoeba Records and I was, uh, when Amoeba, for, I think it, was, it might've been the first one or the second one, but you know, they have those, those booklets, music we like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I opened that up. Oh my God, Bob from Thelonious Monster. I loved that band. And it talked about how he was putting out this record with this band called The Bicycle Thief. And, you know, he was newly sober and uh, it they were recommending this record. So I immediately went over, grabbed the CD and that's the only thing I brought that day. I bought it home and I listened to it and I cried. I just could not believe how personal and beautiful. And I've been recently sober myself. So it was just like the way that Bob had the ability to do what he did in the eighties when I was just this like young girl from Long Island in this Long Island scene. Now, you know, going to high school here in Los Angeles, you know, where I felt so out of place. Bob was this big, tremendous character that had the ability to make me feel seen, you know, when really like I had nothing going on, <laughs> made me feel like I belonged. And I remembered that about him. And that's what that CD did. I was like, wow, it's like he's talking personally to me. And I was so moved by it. And it was instantly that I was like, I, I want to make this movie about, I want, I'm, I'm going to make a documentary um, because of that experience that the way that I felt when I was able to, you know, take that camera into those spaces. And that's where it all came together for me. And I was like, I'm going to make a movie about Bob Forrest. I, I have to believe that he was into this idea and wanted this movie made about his journey because it's just so personal. Is, is that a fair assumption? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I wouldn't say that he was standoffish because Bob is not standoffish. He was very friendly when I met him. We met at the Bright Spot and we had breakfast with Iris and my then boyfriend, who's now my husband. And the four of us sat down. That I was very nervous and we didn't bring up the idea of the film. And I said, oh, I got to I gotta put money in the meter. And Bob said, oh, I'll come with you. And so I was like, oh, I guess this is where I say, <laughs> you know, this is my pitch. And uh, as we walked to the parking meter, just said, you know, your record really blew me away. That it was so personal. And I shared some of my own journey. And I was like, I just feel like, you know, I feel like if we make a film about you, your, your arc is so big, you know, it's like this punk rock story. And then at the time, I was really just prepared to make a music film about Thelonious monster into this like personal bicycle thief. You know, I had seen the devil in Daniel Johnston and I thought, oh, what a beautiful, you know, small movie about a great artist. I want to do something like that. And so he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Howie, what do you think? You think it's going to, how long do you think it'll take you? And I said, uh, I don't know, two years tops, <laughs> having no idea <laughs> what it would actually take. He goes, yeah, yeah, let's give it a shot. Let's give it a shot. Um, so I think he was interested, but hesitant. Like he didn't know what is this going to mean? What is, what are you guys going to talk about? Uh, how long did it take you? So it took 10 years. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. About, I'm going to say 2002, 2003, it premiered at South by Southwest in 2011. So, okay. Under a decade. 
why did you think this film would connect with viewers? You know, Thelonious Monster, they were were pretty big, you know, a little bit outside, off my radar, but they were, I was surprised at some of the venues in in your footage where they played, but what was it that you wanted to connect with them? Well, I mean, I generally have an idea that if something connects with me that personally, I, I know that other people will feel the same. And I also knew that Bob had the ability to connect with people from being at those shows that, you know, I worked at Tower Records, the record stores, you know, there's always the jazz kids and the rock kids and the punk kids and the, you know, but in my sect of like alternative kind of post-punk kids, the stuff that we listen to, everybody was saying the same thing, like, God, it feels like he's talking to me. You know, it just like he's like his ability to connect with the audience was so extreme. I just knew there's no way that uh, it's mine to mess up. You know what I mean? It's like he's got the goods. He's easy to connect with. This is on me <laughs> to tell the right story. Well, you didn't mess up. And, and I have to admit, you know, from an outsider who knew of the band and I didn't know Bob's story, I loved the first two minutes of your film. Mm. Like you said, it's an instant connection. It drew me right in. And, you know, there's Bob in an alleyway at night talking someone down on the phone. And then you cut to some footage of him on stage. And, you know, quite frankly, he's an absolute mess. It was such a compelling dynamic. And uh, I I was hooked. Two minutes in, I was like, okay, settle in, because here we go. Yeah, that took a long time to figure out the right beginning, you know, and I'm so happy you had that response. It was not planned. The filming of that, you know, that that phone call wasn't planned. We were actually getting our cameras ready. Just me and and Rick and this guy, Benny, who had loaned us his camera gear. We were getting the cameras ready for a ride to this studio that Bob was, you know, we were just going to drive around in the car and I was going to talk to him. And he took this phone call and I didn't even really know that Bob was working in recovery. I knew he was sober. We grabbed the camera and just, you know, I stood behind the car and we filmed it. And that was, that was, I mean, that was the opening. We were at the bright spot um, where I met him for breakfast that first time. And it was uh, just one of those happy moments. And it was the first indication that, that I was making a film about something else. Like, oh, this is Bob and look at him. He's on the phone. He's, he's encouraging this mother whose kid is suicidal and, you know, she's doing drugs and, And he's just so comforting. He's so comforting and he's connecting the same way that he would would as this like punk rock singer of Thelonious Monster. And I was so knocked out by that. So I had a sneaking suspicion that that's how the film would open. I always had that in my mind that 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 was the beginning of this journey and that that is the beginning. So where to cut to from there was the challenge. And yeah, when we came up, we played around with a bunch of different things. Um, But when we, we came up with Pink Pop, which was the height of his destruction, you know, it was the height of his self-destruction and, and that's so clear. And that we had, you know, we, I found that footage, it's like a Norwegian television station. Uh, it was beautiful footage too. Amazing. Yeah, it was the right choice. And then to be able to just kind of rewind the tape, like here we are and gave, you know, Bob gave us the intro. This is where it all began. It all started in music. <laughs> well, it's interesting too, because what came across so much immediately was his comfort level of talking to these other people. And he does it, of course, on camera with you. But, you know, that third party thing where you're just kind of eavesdropping, yeah. it was really a skill that you could tell he had and, and it develops through the movie. And, and as he goes, through different parts of of the recovery aspect. Uh, How was Bob to work with? Bob was great to work with. I I mean, there were times where 
he would disappear. You know, he would get nervous about maybe where this was going. Why is it taking so long? But he was never, you know, he was never difficult. The only difficulty that we had sometimes was I just couldn't, you know, get a hold of him. And then there was a moment midway where he got upset with me because I think he was just, you know, he was like, do I trust this, this person or not? Like, what story are you trying to tell? And um, we were, we were in a car together in Joshua Tree and, and we had it out kind of midway through. Um, I felt like he was being really guarded and uh, I was able to break through that, you know, and, and then, and then the, the film took another turn, you know, where it was a more open person. Bob's a performer. You know, and I think with anybody, you're, you know, you're used to performing. And when you're making a film about somebody, there's this natural process of peeling, you know, these layers of like, that you get the first person and you get the second layer of the person. And then after time, like, it was a, it was a blessing that it took as long as it did. Because ultimately it was like, how many, how many licks does it take to get to the center? You know, like it takes years of licks to get to the center. And, and that started to come through too. So that was a good, that was a, that was a blessing, I think. Well, he's certainly brutally honest in the film about his issues, but so are his other band members. And I think the drummer even said, Bob Forrest is one of the bigger assholes to have ever lived. I'm just curious, like, was he aware of what people were saying or did he see these kind of rushes or whatever they're called these days? Yeah, I mean, less people have that feeling about him now, but a lot of people really hated him. You know, I started this film kind of like, it was it was really before big social networking. You know, MySpace was just kind of taking off, but most of the stuff, like I wasn't reaching out to people online, it was phone calls. So I was still getting this like, oh, he's a fucking asshole, you know, or like, or the other side, like, oh my God, I love Bob. So it was these real extremes. There's no in the middle. And I think that was just a result of Bob's, you know, drug use. And, um, you know, he's stealing CDs and selling selling them for cash, for drugs. And and then Pete and, Pete and Bob have a tumultuous relationship. You know, I don't know that that still exists today. Hopefully it doesn't. I was front and center for that relationship, which was constantly up and down. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're speaking with Kirda Baruth, and she's the director of a movie called Bob and the Monster. We spoke a little bit about where Thelonious Monster sprung from, and it was a very small but a unique scene in L.A. You mentioned that and some of the bands coming out of that scene. Dream Syndicate, a huge favorite of mine. What was that like? And there's some amazing footage of that scene. And I was just amazed. You know, I'm always amazed in these documentaries where this footage comes from. But it was right there in that scene in that time, wasn't it? Yeah, that was an amazing scene. And, you know, for me, I was 16 years old, you know, moved here from Long Island, you know, to live with my mom. I had this like new, exciting scene. It was like the Sunset Strip, you know, hair metal, that whole fun environment. But to me, as a 16-year-old girl, very limited options on like how you fit into that scene. So you were like a dancer you were like in a bikini contest at Kazari's or you were a girlfriend, you know, and I wasn't really, wasn't really feeling any of those roles. <laughs> so I got a job at a record store and that fortunately opened like, Hey, have you ever been to the, uh, to the East side of Hollywood? You know, where there was like, not to say it was, you know, this gender equality was happening over there, but it definitely felt better. It felt like I could dress the way I wanted, where I was comfortable dressing. I'm kind of crunchy. I like to wear jeans and t-shirts, you know, which really didn't fly on the strip. You know, I ended up going to these places. It just was more exciting. It was, you know, Fishbone was so different from Thelonious Monster and Dream City was like, everybody was doing, it wasn't cookie cutter. It was like, everybody was, was unique to who they were. And they all seemed to really love each other which was the difference that, you know, I could see from the outside where it was like rivalries happening. It just seemed like this big party. It was just a blast. It was so fun to be around that energy. So, yeah, I mean, that's what it was like. It was, it was really fun. (laughs) It's fascinating too, because there's a map in that part of the movie. It's like a, it's like a four square block scene or something. It's really small. And you know, the, the amount of great music and musicians, and you interview a lot of them. The two guys in Fishbone are just fantastic. And, and clearly, as you say, uh, it, it was a tight scene, you know. But with the footage, how did you acquire some of that? Do, do you put it out on social media? Is it fan-based? Or, you know, because there's a lot of that in there, and all of it's super compelling. Yeah, so some of that is social media, and it was just MySpace at the time. I didn't get much from that, though. You know, I didn't get like people ready to turn over their footage. There's a guy, his name's James Beaton. They call him Big James. And he's a Thelonious Monster fan. And he had a beta cam that he was taking around and and a, a small video camera. And he was filming. So a lot of the footage came from Big James. And that I got that right away. And then Pete Weiss, the drummer, he was also filming while he was out with the band. And so some of the foot, some of that great like backstage footage came from him. The music machine footage of, uh, is there any heroin dealers in the audience tonight? Oh. That came from John Hook. So he, John Hook, who's, who's a band member, early band member. 
And then, you know, the, the film started to gain momentum. I was also at the time producing a film. I started producing a film called We Live in Public, which was directed by Andy Timoner. And the film ended up winning Sundance in 2009, which was a huge deal for us. And of course that opened up a lot of doors for me because I had been now at this point for four years been making Bob and the Monster and the win for We Live in Public gave me a lot of credit. And so people were starting to come out. We got, um, we got footage from Jane Champion and Tina Sylvie who gave us the black and white footage for the video try of all that footage in the beginning of Bob running around. And then people started, you know, donating. Like, hey, you know, I have footage of this. Yeah, and I, I still don't understand. I'm going to have to go back and watch it. That scene with the car, exactly what Bob was trying to accomplish there. You know, there's there's also some footage of Anthony Kiedis and Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers who were pretty tight with Bob and, you know, might be one of the bigger groups that sprang uh, from that scene. And it's interesting because, you know, you had mentioned it before, the, the two kind of takes on Bob, but these guys, you know, they loved him and, and the soft side and he invited them in when they were homeless. And, and that was the start of their relationship. Yeah. They have an incredible relationship to this day. I mean, that, that group of friends is really, I mean, it's envious, you know, that, <laughs> that they're as tight as they are and they, they have stayed that way. That footage came from at Mike. That was a, just such a score getting that footage with Angelo and, and Anthony and Flea and Bob gets up on stage. Yeah, so At Mike is one of those interesting LA characters. He was this guy who was just filming constantly. He has an insane library of footage and he's still out there filming today. But we got that early footage. It was a Sea Shepherd benefit at the Roxy with the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Fishbone. We're speaking with Kirda Baruth, the director of Bob and the Monster. It's a really wonderful movie and everybody should check it out. Let me ask you, you were a fan of the band, and so this may be a little bit of an easy question, but what did you learn about the subject that you didn't know before? And did you walk away, you know, appreciating the band or Bob, and even the, especially the journey more? Well, yeah. I mean, I loved Thelonious Monster back in the day, and I, you know, so I was familiar with who they, who they were, of course, but I didn't know anything about Bob's ability to connect with people as a drug and alcohol counselor. So I thought I was making a movie about a great musician, you know, and I was looking at the, you know, the trajectory from Thelonious Monster into this, what I considered to be like beautiful folk singer, you know, with the bicycle thief. And then he was making this very quiet, like solo record. And I just thought he's such a great songwriter. He's such a great musician. And so and what was the most difficult aspect of making the film? You know, I mean, financing is always challenging. <laughs> so I think that was one of the most difficult things was like this, you know, we would get as far as we could. And, you know, for my husband, you know, my husband and I got married during, you know, making this, we wanted to do with our own time and our own money. But, you know, we had guys like great producers like Austin Wilkin and our great you know, editor, Josh Altman, and we needed to pay people, you know, so we would always hit a wall with like trying to find more financing. And I think that was the biggest challenge. Um, and also I, it was hard to narrow down a 30 year story to 90 minutes. I mean, films are longer now, but I really wanted to keep it under 90 minutes. And so knowing what to, what to talk about and what was important 
was was tough because there was a lot of really interesting. I mean, the bicycle thief didn't even make the final cut, as you know, and that's why I started making the film. That was crushing for me to have to take that out. But overall, it didn't work in the arc of you know who Bob became. And you may have just answered this next question, but what, what would you like the audience to walk away with after watching your film? Hope, you know, hope and, and, and also, you know, what he talks about being mad for living, you know, just not giving up. You know, I love that part in the film when, when I said, like, are you still mad for living? He's like, oh yeah. You know, I mean, just having that desire to keep living and, you know, and make your life worth something regardless of what you do or what, you know, who you are, that is what I want people to walk away with. Like, we're all important. Everything that we're doing, every story is important and worth pursuing. You know, you're worth it. Keep going. That's good stuff, particularly over the last year, I'm sure. Can you fill us in on where Bob is at these days? Does he perform or is he a full-time counselor now? So I'm so excited to update you on where Bob is right now <laughs> because, because Bob is running a punk rocks preschool and in Claremont. And he's now taking on the education, industrialized education. And we're talking about um, making another film. Bob and the Monster Part Two, <laughs> or an extension of the story, because he's now, you know, where Bob, he has, a, he has uh, three kids. Wherever Bob is, it's like he gets his full attention, you know, is like, you know, pumping out kids full of anxiety. And so he wants to take this on. And so he started this punk rock preschool with, you know, he's got Flea playing bass for these kids and like his backyard is filled with little kids. I did not see that coming and yet I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really good extension and I'm a little bit jealous that there was not a, a punk rock preschool when I was coming through because I would love that. I know you made another film and maybe we can have you back to talk about it called Devo Hardcore Live. And I did a little work with them as well. Yeah, I would love to come back and talk about Devo because Devo was one of the most incredible experiences I've had. That band blew me away and I'm just lifelong fan now. I love them so much. And that was such a fun film to make. You mentioned this other project that perhaps maybe a new Bob film. Is there anything else you're working on? Yeah, I just finished, I actually just finished a film with Rick Springfield and it's like a pandemic living room uh, celebration, 40th anniversary of working class dog. And that's just another surprise of the year for me that, you know, I mean, I loved Rick Springfield when I was a little kid, you know, I had working class dog and Jesse's girl, but to get to know him now in 2021, is just, he's just the most incredibly creative, awesome human being that is just pumping out music and still just the same thing. He's still mad for living. I'm really attracted to that. And I'm really attracted to telling stories like that. And so um, we just wrap that up. That's going to be out soon. And then, yeah, I'm meeting with, I'm actually meeting with Bob next week. So this timing is funny. And we're going to talk about, you know, what Bob has to say now about education and kids. Uh, fascinating. Fascinating. Well, this has been Kirdra Baruth. She directed a film that everyone should go out and stream now. It's available on Vudu, Google Play, Xbox movies, and YouTube movies. Shout out to Rugged Entertainment. We're going to be on some new platforms, which we can wait to see a release on that. Well, listen, it's been a terrific talk. I really, really enjoyed your movie. And this is coming from someone who didn't know much about the subject. And, you know, I think that's always a nice 
little litmus test, you know, because yeah. you, there's no preconceived notions. And, and I just thought it was fabulous. So congratulations. Thank you. I want to um, I want to leave you guys with this little audio of Bob and Flea in their preschool. Oh, Can boy. I play it for you? Absolutely. There you go. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you very much, Kirda. And hopefully we can have you back for Devo. I need to go watch it first. I demand that of myself, which is a lot easier of films than books. But we'd love to have you back. Thanks. It was great talking with you, Stephen. All Music Movies is part of the All Music Podcast series and a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.